LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Thomas Sheridan who joins us to discuss hauntology and music. In his book Ghosts of My Life, Mark Fisher defined hauntology as music and culture that draws from and examines a sense of loss of a post-war utopian progressive modernist future that was never quite reached. Hauntological music has been described as music that evokes cultural memory and the ascetics of the past, fixated on ideas of decaying memory and lost futures, and music that explores ideas related to temporal disjunction, retrofuturism, and the persistence of the past. Our discussion includes electronic music, space rock, synth pop, vaporwave, and music for film and television. Hello and welcome, Thomas, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Oh, it's brilliant to be back, Greg. Thank you. Today, Thomas, we're going to be chatting a little bit about hauntology and music. Now, last year we did a two-parter entitled Haunted Pasts and Lost Futures, and that was generally about uh, hauntology in pop culture. Uh, we talked a lot about TV, movies, some books, and of course music came into it. Uh, this time we want to talk a little bit about the music itself or aspects of hauntology particular to music. Now, for people who have got this far and are saying, well, hauntology, what's he talking about? I'll just repeat the definition from last time. Uh, and his excellent book, Ghosts of My Life, Mark Fisher, who wrote a lot about hauntology, he defined it as, quote, music and culture that draws from and examines a sense of loss of a post-war utopian progressive modernist future that was never quite reached. And I think just from Wikipedia... In hauntological music, it describes as music that explores ideas related to temporal disjunction, retrofuturism, cultural memory, and the persistence of the past. And we're not offering anything here, some sort of definitive documentary about hauntological music, far from it. This is more to do with our experience of it, you know, our memories of it, for people who have lived through a few decades now and... Uh, and recall a lot of these cultural artifacts. So this isn't, as I say, like we're not doing a documentary here. This is you and I talking about our particular experience because we have a lot of that in common. Yeah, definitely. I think we grew up in a generation too where the last of the analog music was prevalent within TV and movies and, you know, even advertising. And that left a very powerful resonance within our consciousness. 
that maybe the electronic music, the digital, I'm talking about, that came later probably hasn't. It was almost like the swan song of the analog sound. And I think you almost get that impression sometimes. It, it, it was, it's almost like, okay, let the hauntological cultural things that we're dealing with here, say cinema or TV, well, they're, they're gone. You know, those cultures, that world has gone. You know, we're not going to go back to the 1970s, like, and see, you know, the Children of the Stone as it was back then. Kids riding bikes and nearly killing themselves without helmets and stuff like that. That world is gone. But the echo of it, the, the, the remainder of it is the soundtrack. The soundtrack carries the feeling or the sensation about it into future generations and in ways the visual narrative can't because the visual narrative of a place that where a film was made in the 70s or 80s it's gone forever but the actual music connected to it whether it's a soundtrack music or a music video or something that remains and it almost becomes like a kind of a preservation or a mummification an audio mummification of what that thing was that can never be altered and that's what I think the power of this, 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 this musical soundtrack of this hauntological audio sphere really represents. It is, it's a sensory time machine. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the senses. And there are a couple of senses in particular that really evoke the past and past experiences in our lives. One of them is smell and yep. the, the other is sound or music. It can be a song or it can be a particular type of music, or as I said, it can just be a sound, it doesn't have to be musical at all. And that can transport us in the blink of an eye back to a time. And for many people, it's emotionally charged times. So a song um, or a scent can take you straight back into a moment that you had that was joyous. You know, some of the, you think of the best moments of your life, you know, being in love for the first time. But it can also yeah. be maybe the first time you experience grief. And this is why songs and music can be so powerful. Or just unhappiness or isolation or in a sense of you're feeling your life is incomplete or wrong we were talking there before we did this about that world in action tv show that remarkable introductory piece where the, the hammond organ is played in a, a kind of a furious arpeggio that speeds up and it's, it's a remarkable intense piece of music going with a current affairs program that dealt with basically everything that's wrong with the world. But I cannot listen to that piece of music and not take my away, myself away from the fact that I was 14, year old, 14 years old, miserable and cold. And it's nighttime, and that's it. I cannot... I'm immediately transported back to me walking through the streets at night at 14 in the cold, bored, nothing to do, and wanting a better life. And... It's a combination of depression. No, I wouldn't say depression. The blues, but there's nothing. The music, the the music is almost has. It's almost an animal or a living being by itself. That piece of music, and that's the power of it because it it's. I did. I don't voluntarily want to feel those emotions again. Like you would say a a song that made you think of a girl that like, yeah we're in love it or something like that. I I do not want to be reminded of that. But I am reminded of it. But at the same time, too, and this is the weird part, although it, the sound of that music doesn't represent anything happy, 
it has a sense of melancholy nostalgia at the same time too as almost to enforce well that was the soundtrack of an experience and a necessary experience and i think that's a very underlooked element within a lot of this stuff that even the stuff that makes you bad is the soundtrack of a necessary experience oh absolutely and um it's interesting that you associate that obviously well with that period in time it's natural to do that but you associate it with an experience of your own that wasn't actually anything to do with the television program by the way if people are interested world in action was a uh uk tv program i think it ran throughout you know the 70s and, and i think into the 80s but anyway, it was a current affairs documentary show so if you if you want to hear the music just go to youtube and put world in action theme you can pull that up but this is a bit like some songwriters have said that once you record a song or release a song it's no longer yours and it was actually bono of you too that said he had some deliberately ambiguous lyrics that well they appeared ambiguous to others but they meant something to him but he said the some of the songs took on their own life because you or i could read our own meanings into them so you know the song that he wrote about his mother's death and the black car the hearse coming to collect her the coffin from the house to take to the the graveyard when he, I, Tomorrow was the name of the song. Yeah. Exactly. So when I read uh, his um, autobiography, which came out in the 80s, uh, I had no idea that song had been about that, but I put my own meaning on it and it really meant something to me. So it's this adaptability, I think, that really you know allows all of these things to mean something to different people. And, and that just that little bit of music, which the composers for World in Action probably weren't thinking of you walking through, you know, windset windswept streets you know within a model and mood but uh that's a that's a dimension of this that's like really really incredibly important yeah i think it'd, it'd be coming home and it'd be too cold to be hanging out with my friends and i'd walk into my into the flat where my parents lived and that would be on that did would that so it was almost like a, a punctuation mark of a crap day now interestingly for me i used to watch that show a lot and it was kind of like you know my friends would be like why would you watch something like that it's for adults you know uh, but I, I found these, I was trying to learn more about the world and that what that was was a long format show. Uh, like you know, very rarely do these sort of shows get made these days. Everything's bite size and, you know, just, you know, in the moment and it's gone. There were ever shorter pieces of media and, and clips and memes and everything. But there was a time when, like Jeffrey Mishlove's amazing show, Thinking Aloud, we can't even imagine that getting on TV now. So for me, World in Action was, a window onto the world that I couldn't get in any other way. But also, I remember I would always think about what I'd watched as I sat listening to the closing theme. And for me, when I when I hear it now, yeah, it takes me back to that time, to a time when actually I was happy and probably warm in the house with the, the fire on. But thinking there's more to this, what I've been presented with, there's more to it, and I want to know more about this. I want to know what's underneath it and behind it. I want to know how the world works. So that that's those are the memories that come back to me. Yeah, and that brings you back to the whole thing of the piece of music. When it was put out there, they don't have any ownership of it. You have one interpretation of it, I have another, and there's probably countless others out there. Exactly, and actually, we, we chatted about this off-air, uh, you know, when we started talking about World in Action. I, you know, this strange, strangely introspective piece of music for, uh, you know, a fairly dynamic documentary program. And I used to be, we mentioned this show, I think, you know, the archetypal piece of 1970s tv drama the sweeney and a lot of that was you know like car chases and gunfights and punch-ups these are hard drinking men you know womanizing men 
tough cops, tough criminals. It was a rough show, you know, and even today, you know, levels of violence that you wouldn't see. But the in the tapestry in, in between all of that, there was this underlying tapestry of these mostly men, some women, but mostly men's lives, and what was going on with them, and how you know the the, the again the, the pessimistic downside to it all, and how they would have their their brief moments of of light and glory, you know, when they bust a a, a gang of armed robbers or maybe pull a bird down the pub or whatever, you know, and that's what they yeah. were living for. And and the the lead characters, uh, Regan, he could get quite um, philosophical at times. Uh, there's some funny clips of him talking about life, the universe and everything. And the closing theme to the Sweeney, and this is what this is all building up to, was very much like that world in action theme. It was something that really just pulled you up and made you stop. And for me, it was always like, okay, I've just seen all this on-screen action, you know, explosive action and cars blowing up and everything else. And then it was like, oh, wow. You know, what does it mean for these guys' lives? Where, what is the meaning in their life? What are they doing this for? You know, where is it all going? Yeah, it was a very nihilistic show. And it had, like you said, you had themes you wouldn't have today, like they gleefully beating up. They wouldn't interrogate criminals. They'd beat them up and things like that. You wouldn't. I remember that, like that, that theme had a, it was a big horn section, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was like that. It was almost like a, a 60s movie soundtrack. Uh, yeah, I, I remember that show well. It was, yeah, but the, the, the 70s were nihilistic. Every you know, play for today, and so much that even in Ireland, and so much of TV was about hopelessness in many ways. I I don't know what that was about. I I can remember like when I first went to America, a lot of Americans I met were very nostalgic about the seventies. It was a uh, a wonderful time. It was a time of like Led Zeppelin, and they had a completely different experience than we did in Europe. In Europe, the seventies was an appalling time. Uh, terrorism everywhere, unemployment, everything was wrong. And yet, at the same time, too, everything was rich and full of experience. The ontological aspects of the culture was to actually make you have a philosophical outlook on life, because if you're if you're very happy living in Southern California or somewhere like that, and you're going to a Peter Frampton show, you won't explore the depths of the human condition in the same way you would be in this part of the world where, you know, on a, on a crap April night <laughs> watching a TV show and, you know, the news being appalling and things like that. So I think there's an experience in that. There's a, there's a, there's an element of depth that's reached within this. There's a kind of a Nietzschean uh, understanding that blossoms out of that. And so there, like, therefore, them kind of people might say, well, you have a better experience of life, you're less shallow or something. And I think there's, a, I think there's an element of truth to that. I think there really is. I think if you, you look at those experiences around the world, they generally don't blossom out of comfort and happiness. They, they blossom out of, they like, it's almost like the imprint of the time, the imprint of the environment, the imprint of the sensation is much more attainable. And I guess it's a lot like magic attainable in the sense that the the charge is more profound, focused, and pinpoint if the experience is visceral rather than, a, well, I wouldn't say superficial, but mundane. In the last show, I actually contrasted America in the 70s uh, with the, there was that whole West Coast um, optimism and, you know, hedonism that, that you touch upon there. Uh, but you know, somewhere like New York was, uh, you know, it was a dark place in the seventies. So I think it was like maybe the 
the culture that was presented was it reflected the American tendency to be optimistic, you know, and to gloss over things. Uh, but the seventies in general, I think was, it was that age of simultaneous utopian and dystopian visions of the future. And of course we had the big oil shock in the early seventies and that did affect Americans. But then there was all the sci-fi hangover from the, you know, the moon missions and, and Star Trek, you know, and everything else. And so that was, that was still going to be that, that glossy future was still going to be there. But turning to the music itself, we've already touched upon the idea that so much of this is being electronic music. And of course, that was the sound of the future, wasn't it? Starting maybe yeah. back in the 50s, but into the 60s, but it really came into its own in the 70s. And it was everywhere, you know, synthesizers, that was the sound of the future. Whether it was incidental music on TV, movie soundtracks, it was contemporary at the time. We look back, we, you know, we listen back to it now and go, oh, wow, you know, how quirky. But that was cutting edge at the time. And whether the vision was optimistic or pessimistic, pessimistic, the synthesizer was, you know, the sound of the future. And it cropped up everywhere, didn't it? Like, not just in sci-fi or, or horror TV and movies, but in current affairs programs, in, just in the oddest places. You know, you look back now and it had a pure electronic soundtrack. Well, it was a handy tool. It was, a ha- you know, the convenience of it was that, that a composer could write this piece of music fairly quickly without having to employ an orchestra and do the the conducting and the arrangements and this kind of thing that like they had prior to that, or employ the services of something like the BBC Radiophonic Workshop with basically scientists inside it and all this equipment. And I think it was the, the novelty of, the, I think, the, the immediacy of the synthesizer uh, composition process unleashed a kind of a, an, a not just the word I'm looking for, an enthusiasm among a lot of composers, but also, like you said, Producers of TV shows, there was definitely this vibe you got, like, I want to sound like that, I want to sound like this, I want this, and the ads, the, I remember the ads always, always seemed to have those those sounds as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the synthesizer was a huge revolution at that time, but it wasn't a shock to the system in the sense that, like, the, they were still analog synthesizers, they still were fundamentally coming out of the world of things like a Fender Rhodes piano which or a, a, a Hammond organ. They were a continuation of that. They weren't radically different in the same way. I remember when I first had sampling in the 80s and things like that. That really, that really surprised me. So, but I, it was, I, think that, I think the reason it cropped in everywhere was the immediacy and the accessibility for composers and producers to bang out pieces of music pretty easily. Well, oddly enough, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the last show we did, but I'll mention it now. My earliest musical memory in the sense that a piece of music that I remember grabbing me as a child, me paying attention to and going, wow, you know, actually being affected by a piece of music was actually in 1976. And it was a little snippet from Jean-Michel Jarre's album, Oxygen. Uh, not his debut album, as a lot of people think, but anyway, it came out in 1976. And whether it was a television advert or whether it was a little feature just going, oh, again, about synthesizers maybe. But I remember sitting on the rug in front of the fire and this sound came on the television. And I was like, what is that? And I, I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard of synthesizers. I wasn't listening to music. I would have been six or seven years old. But something about it grabbed me. And that Music and that music in general stayed with me ever since. And there's just, it's the, the sound of the other, it's the sound of consciousness, the sound of the universe. I don't know how to put it. There's something about it. And uh, synthesizers have taken on, especially this analog technology, 
they were discussing that has a kind of a bridge to an organic biological world. It's taken on a sort of a character and life of its own. I can't explain it, but it's like the sound that a lot of people, a lot of critics said was lifeless and robotic has got, has got an organic quality to it that I can't quite put my finger on, but it was something that grabbed me like the music itself was alive. Well, you were having an audio experience rather than a musical experience. Mm, yeah. And we, we didn't have that. You know, we, we were, you were probably also taking your back to a kind of a, a, an ancestral memory of like something like chanting or ancient droning or something like that. I found when I heard that music, it sounded space age, but also ancient. Yes. And it was probably the droning quality of a synthesizer that the note didn't immediately decay would probably have been very similar to something in our ancient past. And that, of course that came out the soundtrack to the opening sequence to Children of the Stones where they kind of had voices that were like human voices mimicking electronics or something. So yeah, I think that's what that was. You had an audio experience. It was your first time in your life you had an audio experience rather than a musical one. Yeah, that very well put that. So you're right. And that's what it was because it was the overall sound I remember which part of the album it was as well, but it was the overall sound and it was unlike anything I'd heard. And it, 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 it appealed to something in me that can't have been very well developed because I was only six or seven. But this lends credence to the idea that we're carrying something with us from those who came before us, some a cultural memory, you know, uh, something of the collective unconscious. I don't know what, but we don't come into this world, I don't believe, like tabula rasa. I think that we, we're carrying something. And that's a big, big question or a big issue for another day. But I think that's what was affected in me at that time. Oh yeah, I think that's why if you grew up in an urban, grew up in an, an urban environment, and you can watch or read a read ontologically type folk horror film about some rural place anywhere, why would you relate to it so deeply if that wasn't in your ancestral past or, or your sorry your your immediate past? It's because it's somehow tapping into something that was in your ancestral path. Now, talking about TV again, uh, and since Tomorrow's World, I don't know if you ever watched that back in the day, yeah. but this was another British TV show that started out in 1965, and it was very much about uh, the future, upcoming technology, new developments, and it could be quite mundane stuff like the latest vacuum cleaner or, you know, magic yeah. mix or whatever. But they were, they brought to British and also, you know, Irish TV audiences for the first time, the home computer, the pocket calculator, the digital watch, these wondrous new things of the future, they showcased. And interestingly, and I knew this, but I'd forgotten this, the show also gave the first British TV exposure to the German group Kraftwerk, who performed their single at the time, Autobahn, as part of an item about the use of technology and music making. And that was, again, a future of the synthesizer in music that didn't really pan out in the way that they saw it, but it's fascinating to look back again, you know, projections of a future that didn't quite take shape. Yeah, I don't remember that. I do remember Tomorrow's World, but that, I, that that's an interesting segment. The thing was that I, re- I associate that first synthesizer music, you know, overtly, that overtly electronic music would be things like the, the Tubeway Army album with Gary Newman. And a lot of that stuff was kind of negative. It was... Uh, even the early Ultravox stuff, even the early Japan stuff that was like synthesizer based. There were, it, the, the, you know, the synthesizer wasn't here to make us happy and liberate us. It was here to make us sadder or something or more. It was very much tapped into the, the nihilistic future that 
that first tube by Army album, it's like the, it's like, the, I know it's a concept album, it's almost like prog rock, really, but it's, it's definitely got this kind of Blade Runner dystopian future narrative mm-hmm. of the lyrics and everything. And I think that's also, you know, that's my memory of hearing synthesizers or, or, you know, electronic bands for the first time. It was always kind of like that. It was not a, it was not a happy, a bright future. It was almost like a validation that this technology is a soundtrack of a, a bleakness to come. Yeah, and I wasn't into synth pop or anything like that in the early 80s. It, you know, it was really... 81, 82 before I started buying records and it wasn't music of that type. But I do remember seeing bands on TV then and they definitely presented the type of vision that you're describing. I'm thinking of like the very early Depeche Mode appearances where they're, yeah, they're kind of got a bit of a glam thing going on, a bit of an influence from Bowie, but it's a singer with like a deep booming baritone droning yeah. voice. You got two guys on keyboards and behind them you've got a reel to reel tape machine playing maybe with the backing track and it's so stark and and minimalist and you know even if they're singing about going out for the night and having some drinks and meeting some girls there is something you know monochrome about it and something of the underworld in it you know it's not a happy clappy bright space age future vision no cabaret voltaire's sensoria i can remember it's a phenomenal song and video but i remember like that like left me speechless but in the video there it's basically in a room building somewhere and they're dressed like almost like they belong in a totalitarian regime is like what's the word uh, secret police or something mm. that was that was a huge one for me and that that whole i mean even that whole and again there was holes in the music i can remember like when i hear it like I, when you hear like you hear, you know, you hear that those music like New Life by Depeche Mode, and it's like, it's, it's, there's an, a hole in it. There's like a whole section that's not filled in. And you get that with the, with the Cabaret Voltaire stuff. And then even bands that came out of that scene, I later developed from that, like Skinny Puppy. There's, there's a hole in that music. And it's, uh, you kind of fill it with your kind of, your, your own nihilism or something. It's, it's really strange. Yeah, it is. It is. But that's, again, that's another very good way of looking at it, actually. A hole in the music. I hadn't thought of it like that. As far as like that vision on Tomorrow's World that I was talking about, and they were promoting a, a sort of kind of future, but at a time when there was already kind of gathering doubt and uncertainty about that future. So that's what's saying about the 70s being an era of simultaneous uh, utopia and dystopia, you know. So, you know, you had the 70s oil shock. You had Alvin Toffler's very influential book, Future Shock. But then you had Tomorrow's World just going home computer, pocket calculator, digital watch, you know, it's all going to be wonderful. And so, and that tension was really interesting. I think that's what a lot of the musicians of the time picked up on. And certainly Kraftwerk were very good on this, talking about how wonderful the technology would be. But listening to it, you're kind of, you don't really mean this, do you? Or a song would start out very, very mindlessly optimistic about the future. And by the end of it, it was kind of like, really really dark and you know and a lot of other bands influenced by craft were you know picked up on that some of whom you've mentioned but also could be beautiful as well i remember the telephone by Kraftwerk. that's an absolutely gorgeous beautiful song about you know it's a, it's, it's, it's a and now, now pop song but there was also a beauty it was it'd be all it'd be i think that's what the enthusiasm in so many of these people was driven by that not only was this is a new way of making music but there was also 
a genuine beauty that could be extracted from electronic music, which turned out to be true, of course. They were right. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I, I have touched upon that. You know, there, there can be, especially compared to the digital devices that came along later, you know, analog technology, whether it be synthesizers or whether it be tape as a means of playback or vinyl, there, there's a warmth to it. And that's just an, an artifact of the, the technology, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, it's there. It's a bit like the difference between real, you know, special effects with like paper mache models and, you know, map backgrounds in films and CGI. You know, we, we, our senses react differently to stuff that's actually there as opposed to stuff that's kind of not in the room, if you know what I mean, like green screen stuff. There's also the element that it it affects our nervous systems very much. I bring it back to film again. The way John Carpenter used synthesizers in his films, they would be directly related to building up a scene about something big is going to happen. Escape from New York is full of that stuff. That's uh, Or it's happened, or it's shock happened. It's almost like he was using the synthesizers as an extension of the nervous system of the viewer of the film. And in a very interesting way, because where in previous films you might have had that done with an orchestra, like in John Williams's Jaws theme, you know, din, 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 that's an orchestra. Or the Psycho soundtrack, din, din, this kind of thing, mm-hmm. where because it was electronic and, and, and people were hearing for the very first time synthesizers on a mass scale used in very successful movies like Halloween and the rest of them that it, he understood the nature of the sound and because he was from a, a musical background, the effect of the, of music upon the nervous system. It's almost like the nervous system became part of the movie, the, the nervous system of the viewers became part of the movie and the, the interface was between that was these, you know, these sudden attacks on the synthesis, this kind of thing. I think he really understood that. Well, Carpenter had a screening, uh, you know, a test screening, as they call it in cinema, where you show your film to invited audience just to see what the reaction is. And this is an advance of release. Quite often it's in advance of the final cut being ready. And he did a screening of Halloween and the reception wasn't that great. Uh, but this was before he had completed the score, the famous score that he did for it. And he redid the screening with no other changes other than adding the score. And the, the, the reaction was tr- completely transformed. I wonder was the use of Don't Fear the Reaper by the Blue Oyster Cult. Remember the, the beginning of the movie when the girls all meet up? Don't Fear the Reaper is playing on the car radio. Mm. And it's one of these things in the background that only later on you realize the symbol of, symbolism of because most of these girls are going to be chopped up that night. Hmm. And the reaper, the reapers in the community. Uh, I, I, off, I wonder. I would. I'd love to know if that was originally on the on the original test screening because that that to me that's now a very profound element in that film. Very yeah. well thought out. Well, he Carpenter's one of these directors that's all you know that just knows his stuff when it comes to culture. So, uh, Quentin Tarantino is another one, and they have all these things in their films that if you're a bit of a nerd or a buff or whatever it happens to be like them, you can spot and they put this stuff and they don't, it's not by accident at all, you know. Sometimes it's just in there for a bit of fun, but other times it's a very deliberate device. I mean, talking about Carpenter, that, the, the 70s, this uh, era were predominantly discussing whether it was movie or TV soundtracks or whether, as I mentioned earlier, just incidental music uh, for television. It was really was a golden era. Not, again, not just sci-fi horror, but just, you know, other genres as well. Carpenter is, is kind of 
probably king of that for me because, you know, he did his own scores for the films that he directed, often as not. Um, I did post something on social media recently, which I know you picked up on. Another favourite for me, director-wise, alongside Carpenter, is David Cronenberg. And I like the scores for all his early films very much. And many of those were done by this guy called Howard Shore, uh, who's now actually famous, uh, much more famous for doing some of the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, you know, soundtracks for those. But again, it's significant that Howard Shore, whether it was for cost reasons, because, you know, Carpenter admits that he started using uh, synths because he couldn't afford to hire orchestras or, you know, people to get into to record the scores for him. Uh, but it's interesting that those early um, Cronenberg films, Howard Shore was using synths a lot as well, particularly films like uh, Scanners and uh, Videodrome. And those films are almost like, they're different than John Carpenter's films. The Cronenberg films are almost like, you could imagine, the, or the, the, the music being conducted while they're watching the film, like an old like silent film. Hmm. The, the music is a character, even to a, a bigger extent. I think, though, that the, the, the soundtrack of films like he made scanners, didn't he? What Cronenberg? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like that to me, that that, that it, uh, and uh, you watch scanners and the music is is amazing in that, and it's it's constant in the background. And what was the other film he made with James Woods and Debbie Harry? Oh, that was Videodrome. That was Videodrome. Yeah, sorry. And that the, he was using music all through those films. If you listen to them, they're not just. Uh, used as a kind of a punctuation or an, an accent, the way that Carpenter was using them. They, they, they hover throughout the film he, hmm. in a different kind of way. They almost like they're, they're almost like a backdrop or a part of the scenery. And again, they're all weird. They're all like, they shouldn't work, but they do kind of thing. There's something that we've touched upon in the past in more than one show that's relevant here is that a lot of people were employing synthesizers, whether it was bands or whether it was film directors, whatever. They were searching for the sound of the future, but they're also searching for the sound of the other, just something you couldn't quite pin down. And this is what the early electronic instrumentation and devices could provide. And when it wasn't sci-fi visions, horror, supernatural, paranormal, just something that no conventional instrument could really capture was suddenly put on the table for composers and musicians. And I know that you've talked about, um, often in the past, the overlap with this t- this um, analog technology and other energies. A bit, I refer- think a little bit of what I said a few minutes ago about these t- technologies, this music having a sort of a biological dimension to it. It's like the difference between a human and a robot, as often as this music and these instruments are thought of as robotic, that they do have a life uh, of their own, a, a quality. Well, if you look at <coughs> excuse me, musical instruments, they're an extension of the nervous, human nervous system. That includes like a microphone, the diaphragm of the microphone is an extension of the nervous system that causes you to work your voice box and, and sing. When you play the strings on a guitar, the pick electric pickup on an electric guitar is an extension of your fingertips put through a coil and then amplified and sent to an amp. The same with the analog synthesizers. They work by generating a sound, a tone inside themselves through an, electro- an analog electronic circuit. And then 
if you look at the, you know yourself, you look at the early synthesizers, they're knobs and you change the modulation and the frequency and the tone and the pitch. And it's almost like a mad scientist machine. It's very much a hands-on thing. With the digital ones, the, often the sounds are encoded into digital chips. They already exist. Other samples of other sounds are real-life sounds. And they're affected in a different way. They're not constructed. They're constructed and processed. They're not evolved and processed the way a signal generator would. And I think the, that's the thing with the, the old synthesizers is that they were, I think that's why some, they even, they, they, they made their way into even trad music. That is because, again, we're back to the whole thing that they resonate in us something that's deeper than just the experience of the moment. And it's deeper even again than even just the nervous system. Okay, let's talk about a few more bands now. And again, as I said at the top of the hour, this is really about your and my my own sort of personal experience here. You know, we're, we're just how hauntology feeds into and out of you know the music uh, that we remember. And again, it, in music, hauntology is basically an approach or an aesthetic. It's not a genre or style. So you can't say you know. They are a, haunt, a hauntological band, whatever they may have. Some band X, Y, or Z may have dimensions of that about what they do, you know, with their, their music, their artwork, their image. But for me, it is an approach, uh, not something that you can have, you know, under H in the music encyclopedia. The first, aside from the electronic music I spoke about earlier, you know, the, the classic 1970s space music, as they call it, like Jean Michel Jarre, Tangerine Dream, Klaus Schultz. The first band to do this for me was Hawkwind, who are, uh, well-known, they probably define space rock really for generations, uh, associated with, you know, future visions. But they also had great concern with the future of our own species and, and the world that we're evolving. And they had, just as we in the last show talked about, uh, the TV show Doctor Who, which is associated with science fiction and traveling across the universe. Some of the most interesting stories in the Doctor Who of the 70s and 80s were actually based on Earth. And so for me, when Hawkwind are singing about life and developments on Earth or the future on Earth in songs like High Rise, um, Arrival in Utopia, Welcome to the Future, Living on a Knife Edge, they're, these are dystopian visions of the future. And they're, of course, the music they build around these themes, for me, is like profoundly hauntological. When I listen to any of those albums, any of those songs that I've just named, I'm really taken back to that. And for me, it's the epitome of that phrase that I opened up with, you know, the, the sense of a sort of lost utopian future that, that never quite arrived. Uh, yeah, I love I love Hawkwind, and I, I have ever since I first heard them. Their their vision, you know, their, their albums, like Space Ritual and In Search of Space and Warriors on the Edge of Time, these are these these were the albums that like I hated. I hated uh, Yes, and I hated all that kind of prog stuff. But there was something dirty and nasty about them. There was something in their sound. Like, even when, even when I heard Levitation when it came out, I think it came out like 79 or something. There, there was something about, they didn't give a damn. They were, they went out there with the sound. And it was almost like there was a, a very strong sonic alchemy to their, their music. They weren't only going to be singing about the future or the, or, or, or on earth, as you said, but they were going to actually create it. It was quite literally a space ritual. And I think it's amazing to think like, with you know how they could be so bombastic sounding at times, and so out there with the big you know the big synthesizer, the big electronic sound, and the big electric guitar sound, 
the huge drums and everything. And so connected to things like Avebury and Stonehenge and ancient druids and, and that kind of thing. Yet the music had nothing at all to do with that world of like neo-paganism. It just, it had nothing, there was no connection there really. And yet for some reason, the more electronic space rock they got, the more they fit in better with the ontological aspects of neo-paganism, the, the magical landscape, the strangening of, the strangening of the landscape, the, the environomicon as I call it. And that's what makes them so remarkable is that they just there was never a band like them really and even even how the songs were there was almost a sense of and so much of their songs of tongue in cheek I often felt as well that they didn't really take themselves that seriously but there was a sincerity in that as well I, I mean I can't say enough good things about Hawkwind I'm, I, I, I absolutely adore them well oddly enough when you, if you listen back to some of the recordings of them playing some of the free festivals in the early 80s, uh, something of which took place in the, in and around Stonehenge. There's something about the, the, the music and the visuals, a kind of a pulsing synthesizer sequence just going on and on. And maybe one of the band delivering something, a monotone, you know, sort of welcome to utopia, welcome to utopia. Yeah, yeah. And it's trance-like, but the, the backdrop of, you know, the stones, the megaliths and maybe like, the sunset or the sunrise, it kind of all makes a sort of sense, but there is something ancient they're tapping into as well. You know, there's something shamanic about it. In fact, a Carl McCoy uh, from Fields of the Nephilim, another band who I like a lot, who, yeah. who get into very long, droning, repetitive sections in some of their songs, he said that it is modern shamanism. Oh, it is. Um, and also... Uh, my 14 year old mind learning things. I remember, I didn't, I remember this one song, I think, Orgone Accumulators on Space Ritual, I think. It is, yeah. And I didn't know what Orgone was. I didn't know, you know, and, and suddenly I'm, I'm trying to figure out what does this word mean? Where does it come from? And you, you think you find that in an encyclopedia in school. And then you learn about Willem Reich and, and, you know, Orgone Energy and all this kind of thing. And I mean, it, it's, it's just like, you know, the, the music serves more than a purpose. It's not entertainment. It's not. It is shamanic. It's like druidic. It not only fascinates you, holds an archive within it, but it also teaches you things. It holds secrets. I think like in a thousand years time, people will be playing albums like Space Ritual and recite and, and, and talking about the songs on them in the same, I think it's a double album too as well, mm. in the same way that they'll be talking, we talk about like ancient mythology or something. They were they were living it in real time. I'm only sad that I wasn't old enough to actually have experienced that when it was going on a place like Stonehenge. It must have been fantastic. Yeah, I think that's why it was so violently oppressed and shut down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what you just commented on provides a neat bridge into something I know that's um, a favourite of yours. You talked about uh, Orgone Energy and uh, Willem Reich, and of course... Into, that takes Texas to um, a little cul-de-sac here, cloud busting, you know, uh, Kate Bush. Yeah. yeah, well, that album was those, those two albums, The Haunting and Cloud Busting, were both made in Ireland. They're filled with Irish musicians, and they're, I think, the guy from Riverdance or something produced them. The guy who later came up with Riverdance, the music part of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was. It was the guy from Horse Lips. I can't remember his name right now. But uh, the. 
that video for cloud busting. I mean, you, uh, could you imagine like a, mu- a music video being made like that today? With Donald Sutherland and her pushing this, you know, orgone accumulator up the side. I think it was, it's actually a uh, Windmill Hill in, in Avebury. You see in the background, uh, Silbury Hill and they're in there in the megalithic landscape there, you know, they got like West Kennet Long Barrow and the Avebury circles mm-hmm. and everything all around them. And a song about, uh, you know, the CIA shutting down this guy who basically found a way to accumulate en- free energy or some kind of energy force from the, the atmosphere. Yeah, and, and the, the cloud busters was these things, these things he actually constructed. This is a real guy uh, to sort yeah. of like he pointed at the clouds to uh, trying to get to seed the clouds, wasn't it? To get them to, you know, to make rain, I think. Oh yeah, but it was, sort of, it, it was like a, a cable went into a, a lake, and it was almost like that was a grounding wire or something, like the earth wire on a plug, and it it worked every time, and it, it was probably murdered in prison by the FBI. But he also had developed machines that could that could actually. He was building like a megalith you kind of sat in. It was a machine that had different layers of quartz and things like that. Now, again, what drove her to do that? What she apparently was when she wrote that song or learned about that song. Someone told her a few years previous about Willem Reich, and she went out and paid an awful lot of money for books that had been ostensibly been banned to get them at the time. They talk about the early eighties. Now. Obviously, she had tapped into something again in her. I, I know she's of Irish background and everything, and that's a, as well as being kind of very English in many ways. Uh, you know, that old-fashioned kind of hauntological English stuff, especially those two albums. But that that the, the Kate Bush thing, the, the, those the Hounds of Love and the 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 one before and the one after. They are an, an, an a remarkable body of work, and they're they're saturated in the landscape. No matter what the song, whether it's the sea, whether it's the sky, whether it's the stars, like Hello Earth, it, that is a, you know, the, the Hounds of Love is, is absolutely a shamanic piece of work. Without it, it's probably, it's probably the greatest album ever made. And it, I know that's a, a big one you could put out there, but in terms of my own musical experience, that album profoundly affected me when I first heard it. And I think it's, to this day, it still does, and you can listen to it. And what's obvious about that album is, is that she was tapping into something that wasn't just her looking as a way to write songs. She was connected to a source, as you said, the other. And it's just that I, I, even people that don't believe in that stuff, might be atheist or materialist, will listen to that album and say there's something supernatural about the songs on it. Well, it's interesting here. I think as an aside... I should mention for those who don't know that Dave Gilmore of Pink Floyd, of course, was an early champion of Kate Bush and I think produced some demos for her in the early days. And for me, Pink Floyd, at their best, were tapping into something exactly as you say and had something of the other about it. And they weren't just uh, a pop group or a rock group. Well, when after he joined, the, the period after sort of the psychedelic Sid Barrett era, when that was gone, between that and Dark Side of the Moon, Saucer Full of Secrets, Center Control to the Heart of the Sun, that Echoes period. They mm-hmm. were absolutely, totally into that, that, that whole thing. It's funny too, because it's kind of like the undervalued element of their work. You know, you talk about Pink Floyd, and people, the first thing they'll talk about is like the wall, or the dark side of the moon, or animals. 
or then they all they go they, talk, they said bar- weirdo kind of weird stuff earlier on. Yeah. And yeah, it's to me their best section is that Dave Gil young Dave Gilmore. Uh, period, like you know, the the live at Pompeii thing is their seminal moment, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, it really is. Yeah, that's something that, again that affected me. That's how I got into Pink Floyd. That was again. Can you imagine this happening now? Well, maybe actually on ITV Four, BBC Four, you could. But that was shown during the mid '80s on British television, late one night, maybe Channel Four. Uh, you know, the entire concert film, and I just stumbled on it. I just happened to turn it on just as it was starting. And I just remember just sitting there with my jaw hanging open for like, you know, 90 minutes. I saw it in the cinema and it was, it was played before the, they had re-released uh, some science fiction film, not a very good one. And it was like a short. It's about, it's about an hour long. At this short, they played it in the days when they'd show a movie before the, the main movie. And some old cinemas were still doing that. And it was just like me on a Wednesday afternoon sitting there with my jaw open for a half an hour or an hour. It was literally like that. Again, especially that, that, it was like, you could, there was, and again, like, it's not like echoes, okay? It's, it's, there's a lot of, it's, it's, it's folky sounding. It's, the, 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 when they sing the verses, it sounds like an old English folk song. Hmm. And I find that remarkable, like, <clears throat> bands like Wishbone Ash had that element as well. They might have these like these fantastic electric guitar solos and you know power chords, but when they'd actually do the singing, you you you'd almost t- you're waiting for Morris dancers or something to appear. <laughs> well, we should we should uh, even briefly mention something about folk music because when you read uh, articles, uh, books about hauntology, you know, which have been appearing in the last few years, when they talk about hauntological music, folk music comes up very often. Uh, you know, and this quality that's often mentioned, this otherly pastoralism, you know, this, this underbelly of the countryside, you know, the dark side of the countryside. And a lot of this music is associated with the folk horror, and indeed folk horror revival. But anyway, folk horror being films like Blood on Satan's Claw, uh, The Wicker Man, the soundtracks of those. But no, it's not music that I've paid a lot of attention to in my life, not music I know a lot about. I'm no expert by any means on all these current folk horror uh, revival acts, you know, or you know, these bands that are playing upon this quality of otherly pastoralism in their music. But I'm mentioning all this so we can mention Clannad, which is something we have in common, the famous Irish folk group that later became a sort of folk pop, folk rock group as they evolved over the years. And there was a certain point in their career, I think, when they really touched upon, it was a combination of things of their past, but also elements of the future. And for me, that really happened on Magical Ring, which I think was their first really big album. It was the first one that fully, I think, realized their vision of the the, the past culture of Ireland and contemporary technology, uh, you know, into quite a unique vision at the time. Yeah, th- that was the album that made them superstars outside Ireland, but they were very famous in Ireland going back to nearly the early 70s as, as doing basic trad traditional music and very well. And Enya, who went on to become a superstar in kind of like new age music, she was, she was still in the band then doing straightforward. The album before Magical Ring, Macala. No, Fool, it was called. Yeah, Macala was after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was still, that's still a good album. Uh, they, 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 the synthesizers began creeping in. And the electric, the, the electric guitar started creeping in. And they, they would, they, I can remember hearing a couple of songs from it that had that vibe, that had that, 
what was to come, but I can remember the very first time I went the song a theme from Harry's game. It was I didn't watch the TV show. I knew nothing about it. I didn't even know Clannad were on the soundtrack. And I'm watching Top of the Pops and the number one single that literally went to number one the week it was released in the UK. And here's Clannad with Harry's game, and I'm like, oh my god! And you cannot believe what you're hearing. And it's number one on Top of the Pops. You know, Olivia Newton-John was just on before it. This kind of thing. And I went to work that night. I, uh, after school thing, working in a restaurant cleaning dishes, and there was a waitress there talking, and she was like big into pop music and stuff. And she said, Did you see who's number one? I can't, it's ridiculous. That song is not a pop song. It shouldn't be number one. And then uh, someone else, a friend of mine, had bought Magical Ring, and when the the song Newgrange came on, here was somebody singing, using electro- synthesizers with these haunting lush, ethereal vocals droning with Marie Brennan's almost unnatural, you know, voice from another realm and singing about ancient magical circles and with this, with those, you know, this dissonant drumming and again, holes in it, lots of holes in the music to, to throw your thoughts and your emotions and your feelings and your inclinations into. And it was just, I can remember one time, just like someone playing on a, on a, on a, on a boombox up in the Wicklow Mountains when it was, the sun was going down. And, you know, just hearing that song, Newgrange, and it was just, my God, am, am I still in, you know, Ireland in the 20th, 20th century? I might as well have been back in the, the Neolithic. Again, back to the, this is a sound of a past, this kind of thing. And, uh, Clannad would, I don't know any band that's, that, from the folk scene that took the synthesizers and the electronic instruments and used it to enhance their ethereal quality rather than it. Now I know later on they went to America and they became very, they had that one album that became a kind of Hollywood album that they did serious, which is, it's mm. okay. It's, it's a good pop. It's a, it's a decent pop album. It's not rubbish or anything like that, but it's not really clowned. But then they got back to their kind of roots again. But they're the only folk band I know that I can think of anywhere that did that. And not only did they do it well, but they, they just knocked it off out of the stadium in, in terms of it and launched them. It, it definitely, that album is definitely a work of magic. I've, I've not, for all the irony of Marie Brennan being a born again Christian and all this stuff, she and her brothers produced a work of a pagan alchemy. I'm sorry they did. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can say you are what, whatever you want to be and you can feel and believe whatever you want but there's sometimes and some artists run with this and make the best of it and others they fight against it there's forces that will act through you (laughs) you know that you can just well just up to how you respond but they're coming out one way or another you know yeah and she even said i saw an interview where where some show was talking about she was between her talking about her faith and their christianity she did actually say something like that, that, that those new songs came out of a, a, and she was very comfortable with it. So she wasn't that kind of like a closed-minded Christian that was just channeling the devil's music or anything. She was probably what you hear people tell you the Celtic churches, if that's true, I don't think it is, but this kind of like, well, th- th- that rollover period where paganism and Christianity definitely sat side by side for a couple of hundred years in places like Ireland and, and parts of this part of the world and, 
and they're, they're definitely it's definitely of that vibe. But and I, I, then Clannad have done so much uh, soundtrack music, and and then they transposed it to the to the the last of the Mohicans, which is set in America, and somehow it worked there as well in the context of those you know those stories, those the leather stocking tales being put to the cinema with Daniel Day Lewis. They uh, that that's a classic when i hear the opening of newgrange i am it's just one of those things like i'm home that's the way i describe it i'm home mm, yeah that's uh yeah, that's very very special no question about it another uh, 90 degree turn just to something that we have touched upon and this is you know back to synth pop and i'm just thinking about the again the dystopian aesthetics of some of these bands now some you know uh whether it's like synth pop post punk uh, no Wave, uh, bands like Joy Division, the aforementioned Gary Newman, John Fox, who was one of the founders of Ultravox, a, f- a favourite of mine. I, what I find very interesting and deeply hauntological for me personally is the the aesthetics that they employ, not just it sound-wise, but in, in visuals, and how they put it all together and how it tied in with things that they were either directly or indirectly influenced by. You know, things like uh, J.G. Ballard, uh, one of my favourite uh, writers, his novels High Rise, Crash, and it was just this pre-stressed concrete and steel version of the future, dehumanized, dystopian, but you know, dark and dirty at the same time, like you mentioned Blade Runner earlier. You know, these are not clean, shiny, zeitgeisty sort of visions of the future. You know, this is a definite dystopia with all the kind of all the dirt that comes with that. And of course, uh, I mentioned Crash, that was David Cronenberg film, and in his early movies a lot of the visual aesthetics could have come straight out of, you know, like a Joy Division or a Gary Newman video. The same with Clockwork Orange. You know, you look at the, mm. the, the the architecture and the buildings and that, that vision of the future, that could have been a Joy Division video, a Gary Newman video. I find that whole period, uh, the symbiosis between sound, and I've always had a special interest in architecture. For me, these some of these bands are like the sound of, brutalist architecture you know it's, it's what what it mm-hmm. sounds like put into a song context if you see what i mean and in the early cronenberg films if you look at the brood the soma free institute that building in scanners the concept building in shivers that high-rise apartment block in cronenberg's stereo uh the academy as it's called in crimes of the future the house of skin so uh, yeah that the whole thing of brutalist architecture of dark dystopian visions of the future and the sounds of some of these artists and bands put together for me was like a even when they didn't put it together themselves it's a it's a perfect package for me Cronenberg was also was he Canadian yes so it was almost the dealing with the thing of coming from a land that doesn't have a culture like a past you know I often got that impression as well that there was something very kind of like it was a Canadian dystopia in the same you know there was like we don't have, you know, Canada, we don't have a past beyond these, these buildings around Montreal and Toronto. Kind of touched in, in, but in the Rush song, Subdivisions, by the way, uh, that, that kind of, you know, what is Canada? And then applying a, ho- a kind of a horror thing to it. Well, then, if we fast forward into the future or into where we are now, the present, we've talked about, uh, particularly in some of the things we mentioned at the top of the hour, how there's this, the, the hauntology in music and in culture in general is about, you know, the invocation of the past, you know, uh, these optimistic futures that never really arrived. When in the run up to the year 2000, I had been encountering so much, you know, as a music writer at that point, encountering so, encountering so much 
retro stuff and so much looking back. And I naively thought it's partly to do with fear of the future and we got the impending millennium. And maybe when we get past the year 2000 and into the, the 2000s themselves, you know, then it'll be a new millennium and, you know, maybe some new things will come up. But if, if anything, after 2000, we seem to slump culturally into even more of a malaise and, and into the doldrums and retromania and nostalgia just be, well, it became mania, you know, just a, a retromania being the title of a book by Simon, Simon Reynolds, which is very good on this subject. And I can't remember where this quote is from. Um, it might be from retromania, but anyway, when cultural innovation has stalled and even gone backwards, one function of ontology is to keep insisting that there are futures beyond post-modernity's terminal time. When the present has given up on the future, we must listen for the relics of the future in the unactivated potentials of the past. So it's almost like this looking back in culture and in music is like, oh, there was something there that we didn't fully explore that, that never blossomed. You know, can we get, can't we get back to that? You know, and can't we just, cause you know, what's happening now is just so redundant and so hollow. Yeah, I think it's a search for a kind of a, a, a folk. A folk uh, culture of the present. Mm. It doesn't exist. Yes. Except in one thing. I think that vaporwave thing is kind of like the millennials folk revival. They grew up in a different world than you or I grew up in. And I've heard people say that the vaporwave thing is stupid and stuff like that. And I don't know. I I see it as a kind of a... I'm quite quite fascinated by it, even though I don't have a, a a personal cultural reference to it. There's something about it. It's it's like, it's you know, one of the things with vaporwave that people say is 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 one of the things that makes it rubbish is that anyone can do it. You can download like Audacity. You can download a, a, a free video program. You can take on Nintendo graphics or old eighties, um, nineties sort of soft jazz soundtracks. Even Simpsons episodes are used in it, and Simpsons type things, and using VHS rewind and tracking problems the great a kind of an audio visual thing that's like a dream of what if you go to sleep tonight and dream about the the past you would probably dream about it in your it would a vaporwave music video is probably how that dream would be presented yes (laughs) and it's not getting the credit it deserves because people are saying well well anyone can do that anyone you know yeah i know anyone can do that anyone can write a folk song you don't even need an instrument. You can just clap and sing in the old days. It was the same thing. It's almost like this is the millennials' folk culture. And it's, I think it's, it's quite, uh, positive. It's, you know, it, it, I look at it and I see, you know, someone could look and say, this is rubbish or it's just, you know, pop culture twee or, or basically a bunch of 35 year olds longing for their time when they had their first Sega you know, Mega Drive machine or whatever. But that still makes it folk. Because that's their lives. That's their folk life experience. They're taking it up. They're mashing it into something. Giving it this kind of, like, when you think about Max Headroom, Max Headroom was kind of, like, predicting a lot of that kind of stuff. And I'll give you another one as well. Nigel Keneal's Quatermass 3 has a scene where Professor Quatermass is trying to get information on a TV show about his missing granddaughter. And there's this weird segment called Bumpity Tittity or Tittity Bumpity or something on it. And it's like 
it looks like people in a vapor and even has a similar kind of soundtrack where there's like basically people dressed up looking stupid in, in <laughs> fluorescent colors and they're humping a banana. But it's like something you see in vaporwave videos. It was almost like we're back to the science fiction writer. Is he or is he or she writing about the future or is he or she like a Lovecraft or a Colin Wilson or a, a Nigel Keneal or a, an artistic like, are they creating the future? You know, that's, that, that, I find that stuff, I mean, that to me is the most um, a fantastic thing of all. And I think when people say there's, there's nothing today, there's no, I don't know, I look at that vaporwave and, you know, an old fart like me looks at that and then sees, or recognizes something of value in there that's not getting the appreciation it should. By the way, if people are interested, if you want to know what vaporwave is, if you don't, just Google it. But I've done a couple of, well, a two part show with a very young guy in his early 20s called Grafton Tanner, who wrote a brilliant little book about Vaporwave. And if you uh, stick that into the search box at legalizefreedom.com, you can find the show. But at one dimension of Vaporwave is its graininess, you know, this analog breaking down. Yeah. Uh, you know, the VHS tape has got snagged, the cassette has got snagged. And this is a very common dimension of hauntological music and sound, which is the that analog graininess coming into it often associated with vaporwave is uh, an artist there's one english guy but it goes under the name of the caretaker and if you listen to his album it's a good very good example of what we're talking about everywhere at the end of time or william basinski quite a well-known i think he's out of new york uh composer his albums the disintegration loops cascade again people if you don't know them look them up you'll see this quality of the breakdown of sound morphing into other things and this takes us into one idea that I want to explore, you know, as we bring the show to an end, is this idea of loss. Because we're presented with this picture in contemporary uh, technological society that now all data can be preserved, will exist for all time, our own media profiles, our own information, and all that analog stuff from the past is now digitized and will live forever. But if that's the case, are we experiencing the loss of loss? Because all those albums that we can't find anymore and those TV shows that were that were wiped from the tape and are absolutely gone forever, is everything now always accessible in the digital age? You know, is that a good thing? And then the flip side of that is, have artifacts of the digital age already begun to be lost? You know, some kind of digital dementia, this idea that uh, even our modern storage and recording mediums are subject to decay. Which is you know, unthinkable to many people. Lossless is gainless. Think about that. It's sterile. Mm. If it can never be like like there's a perfect analogy. The the grainy lines on a VHS video, the hair in the gate of an old sixteen millimeter film. That adds a quality to it that that's not you know part of the perfection of the process, the end product. But it adds a mystique, a resonance, a a sense of gravitas that relating to its energetic footprint or within your consciousness that wouldn't be there previously so like even way in vaporwave how they take like awful kenny g and david sanborn <laughs> 80s 80s smooth jazz which at the time would want to make me vomit when i heard it it was so slick and superficial and plastic and then they bring it into into vaporwave and they they put on put compressors on it and limiters and they strip it down into nothing and then suddenly all of a sudden 30 years later, Kenny G is listenable. 
because of what has been removed and, and what has been distorted. And that to me is uh, that to me is an amazing thing as well. And this whole thing of data being, you know, like digital data being perfectly transformed and there's no loss with it, there's no gain either. And that's why I think that vaporwave also the reason why this ge- that generation of vaporwave artists deliberately imprint and incorporate things like uh, VHS tracking problems and jumps and skips and the you know compression on the music to make it sound like a 1970s. 1950s transistor is to add to it is to add to the lossness because the lossless quality means that nothing can be gained from you like it's the it's the audio visual version of not you know uh, going into an old bookshop and smelling an old book right that that is not attainable anymore with this perfect data element that it can always be Every copy is 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 as good quality as the original. It does not decay in terms of its digital, its digital foundation and integration over time. That is a sad thing. There's a sadness in that because there's no antiquing or aging or weathering to make it look beautiful in a different way. And I think that's what the vaporwave guys are really trying to do. Is they're trying to maybe subconsciously, but I'm sure consciously as well, and some of them incorporate a sense of beauty through imperfection within the digital world. Well, incidentally, I've just been reminded there's a really brilliant uh, YouTube clip where somebody's taken a very simple thing to do, nothing advanced behind it, but they've taken Last Christmas by Wham! and they've just time-stretched it to something like 45, 50 minutes, and it's just become this, um, this stunning soundscape. And yeah, it's got to be here to be believed, really. So it's just, but yet and all, it, all that is, if you just compress it like an accordion, it's just Last Christmas by Wham, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a pro, it's a feature called Paul Stretch. It's on Audacity and other programs. You can just rip it out. It maintains the key, which is weird as well. Mm-hmm. But there's other ways of doing that. We've seen the video of the Teletubbies to New Dawn Fades by Joy Division in black and white. I think I have. It's fantastic. It's like you watch you watch the Joy Division. You, you see them walking, doing the Teletubbies thing in black and white to New Dawn Fades, and it's like, holy god, it's incredible. <laughs> suddenly, it's not. Suddenly, again, it's 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 the losses has been given gain through well, the destruction of it. Yes, exactly. Well, there there is no there is no life without death, without life, without death, yeah. without life. If you know what I mean, that's the cycle. Uh, maybe a closing thought. Anyway, for me, the proliferation of new music drawing upon hauntological sounds and themes, for me, represents, and you've basically said this in your comments about Vaporwave, a sort of a reintroduction of mystery and the unknown into um, a society we have that's just very materialistic and very science-based. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it's necessary, too. Again, we're not in control of a lot of these things. There's a human desire to add depth, meaning, and character. It's like the Japanese thing where they repair broken vases with melted gold and silver. I think there's a desire within us to seek beauty in, per- in imperfection just because the imperfection is what charges us with the enduring level of consciousness and remembrance and melancholy. And I think that's where a lot of that comes from. It's just like what we said at the very beginning about the world in action theme. It reminded me of bored, unhappy teenager. but it also left a powerful, powerful sense within me. In the same way, a, a tracking line on a, I mean, I can remember films that I saw that were 
great movies, but I, I can remember that the, the VHS tracking thing did kind of add something to it later on. You would laugh and joke about it. You'd be trying to watch some film or something. The best scene comes along and suddenly the tracking goes off. But that's also part of the experience. And I think that if the hauntological thing is to, to survive, and, it, it, you know, Vaporwave definitely does give that impression, into the future, it will be a trajectory and a desire towards making the perfect imperfect. Splendid. Well, Thomas, for people who want to explore your own work, a number of books available, different things out there, projects you're working on, tell people where they can find you uh, online. My website is www.mossuponstones.com. My main YouTube artistic creative channel is Beyond Room 313, and that's based like that's basically the door into everything. Wonderful. Well, once again, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you.